Uh, let's turn in our Bibles to Mark chapter 14. And you will remember that uh, Jesus has come into Jerusalem in Mark chapter 11 in the triumphal entry. He went straight to the temple and cleansed it, said, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Stirred up quite a controversy there, and he faced questions about his authority and his truthfulness for a couple of chapters. And then in chapter 13, we saw that speaking of the temple, he predicted its destruction, which was also outrageous to those in Jerusalem who considered the temple to be the eternal dwelling place of God. But he condemned it because it had lost its its function and because the people had not known the day of God's appearing to them. And then in chapter 14, where we are now, we saw that Jesus was anointed at Bethany, prepared for his burial by this woman who alone saw the meaning of that evening. And then, of course, last week we looked at the Lord's Supper and its significance in Jesus' day and its significance for us in our day. Then we come to verse 27. We're going to read 27 uh, through verse 52. And uh, here we're going to see the beginning of Jesus now being arrested and taken before the Jewish authorities and the Roman authorities. We really uh, enter into the beginning of his sufferings. And uh, as we look at it, there are really uh, two or three things that we ought to notice in these next few weeks. One is the continuing poise and authority and dignity and glory and beauty of our leader, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, he is truly the most remarkable human being who ever set foot on this earth. And we're going to begin to see the eminence of his character in a special way as we study uh, these verses. <clears throat> and then secondly, you can't help but notice as he is exalted and shown in all of his ca- deep, deep character, so are we. And we're going to find the, the failures and the foibles of the disciples and uh, it won't take much imagination for us to relate very intimately with them. And then we're going to see what difference all this makes uh, to us today. The wonder and character of our Lord Jesus Christ and the failure of the disciples. And how does it all shake out? And what's the meaning of it? And why would Mark and the other gospel writers even bother to tell us about it? So let's, let's begin. We'll look here as Jesus, after the Lord's Supper now, is going to predict uh, Peter's denial. We're going to see him in the Garden of Gethsemane. And then it is in the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus is arrested. And we'll see some significant events that take place around that arrest that once again will teach us, uh, I think, the profound things for us to grasp today in our lives. Let's look at verse 27 then. You will all fall away, Jesus told them, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered today. Yes, tonight before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. They went to a place called Gethsemane. And Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him. And he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. 
My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Once more, he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, appeared. With him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him. The men seized Jesus and arrested him. Then one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Am I leading a rebellion, said Jesus, that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you, teaching in the temple courts, and you did not arrest me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then everyone deserted him and fled. <clears throat> a young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. Amen. All right. I think uh, the best way to look at this text is to break it up the same way the NIV has. I believe we have three uh, cohesive uh, elements there. Now let's look at this first one in verses 27 through 31, and we'll see that Jesus' disciples deny that they will deny him. That's interesting, isn't it? They not only deny him, but they deny that they will. Sometimes they deny that they did. But we, uh, we have a habit of going into denial. It's one of our favorite techniques. If life is too tough to manage. One of our coping strategies, just deny it. <laughs> if uh, we committed a real whopper and somebody caught us, but we're not sure they have the, the goods against us, the evidence, just deny it. It's one of the favorite techniques in politics now. Just stonewall them. You just stare them down. And uh, that's exactly what disciples do, including ones in this room, starting with the one who's preaching today. Uh, we tend to do it. But notice in verse 27. Our failure is predicted. We do not catch Jesus by surprise with our lack of spiritual performance. He's quite aware of our weaknesses. But notice in particular, he is not just uh, not just assessing us honestly and knowing that we're not reliable, but rather, even more importantly, if you look at verse 27, he is quite aware of something uh, very important, and that is the scriptures. Jesus doesn't have his eye on us. 
He knows that we don't control history. He believes the scriptures. And in the Old Testament, in Zechariah in particular, we have this verse, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. When we studied the minor prophets, we looked at that verse. And here Jesus is very aware of Zechariah because when he came into Jerusalem on a donkey, he was fulfilling Zechariah also. He is constantly fulfilling the scriptures and aware that the scriptures are being fulfilled. He's watching the history that was predicted thousands or hundreds of years before unfolding right before him. He knows his Bible and he can see it unfold. He's aware of something very important, and that is the hand of God in his own life. And gentlemen, when, when stuff's happening bad to you, uh, don't be surprised. Number one, humanity never is described in the Bible as being the picture of moral excellence. And number two, uh, God has uh, ordained your days and he's ordained your ways. And just keep your eye on the Lord who controls history, who controls you, and who will protect you. Look where the, the Lord's eyes are. They're on his Father in heaven and on the Word of God. And in particular, when you look at that text, the very first word of that Zechariah text is the most important one. Who will strike the shepherd? I will strike the shepherd. Now, hang on just a moment. Is this assigning evil to the Lord? Isn't it true that it's going to be the Romans who strike the Messiah or the Jews who strike the Messiah? Isn't it true that it's the disciples who are going to abandon the Messiah? But look where Jesus sees it. He says, my father. He's quoting the scriptures that say, I, God, will strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. So not only is Jesus aware of God controlling history, but Jesus is aware of his father carrying out even the most painful thing in his life for the father's glory. A lot of times we have a hard time believing that the worst things that happen to us or are under God's control. Uh, I'm just waiting to get the, the Christian commentary on uh, Virginia Tech. And I assume that when it starts coming out, it will probably, at least a CNN will report it or others, it will be very similar to what we heard about Katrina. And one theologian after another and one pastor after another will say, well, now God had nothing to do with that. Uh, now, he's merciful and he'll help people who are in that disaster, but he had nothing to do with it. That's not what Jesus is saying. He isn't saying... My father will seek the scattered sheep after human beings scatter them. He says, I, he's quoting God, I will strike the shepherd. Look as an example, leave your finger there. Turn over to Acts chapter 2, and uh, this, this will be page 1757. And here you have the apostles, Peter in particular, who is now preaching on the day of Pentecost. All the Jews are gathered, you know, 50 days later. Here at the Feast of Pentecost, the Spirit comes. Everybody wants to know, what is the meaning of this? Tongues of fire on people's heads, speaking in languages they haven't studied. What's the meaning of this? And Peter preaches and really says two things. Number one, this is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy in Joel, that in the last days, your sons and daughters will prophesy and so on. Secondly, it's showing us the exaltation of Jesus Christ. That's the meaning of Pentecost. So it shows the fulfillment of the day of blessing uh, cited in the Old Testament. And it shows that Jesus Christ is exalted because it is Christ with the Father who pours out what you now see in here. But if you look in verse 22 in this sermon, he says, Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, 
which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. Look at this. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him on the cross. So he doesn't deny that you were responsible for nailing him on the cross. But he says, ultimately, this was by, by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. The worst evil that was ever perpetrated in the history of the world was by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. Turn over to chapter 3, next page. And here you get uh, another speech of Peter and John on the day that they healed the crippled beggar. Verse 17. Now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders. But this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Christ would suffer. So God did it by his set purpose and foreknowledge. And then he foretold us in the Old Testament. Turn the page again. Look at chapter four. We're just looking at the preaching of the apostles here. Uh, verse uh, here, here you have um, this is an instance of prayer after uh, Peter and John had been severely warned by the Sanhedrin not to preach in Jesus name anymore. They went back to the believers and began to pray and see what happened. You, uh, let's pick up on the prayer with verse 27. This is this is in prayer. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. So you see, they're praying for strength to, to stand up against the threats. But they also acknowledge in prayer that Herod and Pontius Pilate did what God's power and will had decided beforehand. So this is the mind of Jesus Christ. This is the heart of Jesus Christ and the mind of his apostles that even evil itself is under the control of God. He did not create it. That's a mystery. Where evil came from, we do not know and the Bible does not tell us. The only question on the table right now is once you have the presence of evil, who is in control of it? And clearly, in the worst case in history, the Bible is explicit God is in control of it. Now, in this case, it's easy to see how the worst evil in history turns out to be the greatest good. It's called Good Friday. It's not as clear to us at this point how all the other acts of evil, including Virginia Tech, will turn around for good. I don't know. And the Bible does not tell us. The Bible does tell us about Jesus' death and the good that comes from it. I do not know about the good that comes from other evil. It's a mystery to me. I do not understand it. I'm flummoxed. I'm befuddled. I'm sometimes in great distress. But one thing I know, that God is in control of it. And two things I know, God is going to bring good out of it for his people. So I may not know how, but I know in the worst case it's true. And therefore, in all the less, lesser cases, uh, it would be true. 
That's what the Bible teaches us. So Jesus, if you turn back now to Mark chapter 14, you see the mind of Jesus. He has his mind on the scriptures. And he has his mind on the sovereignty of his father. There is no question in Jesus' mind as to who's in control of this. And that is going to give him great strength and poise and dignity and control as he enters his own death. And gentlemen, it's the only way you're going to face your death. And by the way, you don't know when that's going to be either. Who knows? We don't have a security guard who has a metal detector at that door out there. If somebody wanted to wipe out four or five hundred really good guys, <laughs> this would be a great place to do it. Early in the morning. In the dark, come on in here and just take us out. Nobody knows when something like that would happen. And we have to be ready for our death all the time. And we have to live as men who know what's on the other side of death. And Jesus did. And you can see his conscience. You can see his mind. It's brilliant and it's radiant and it's holy and it's powerful. And he commends that same thing to us. Peter tells us, by the way, later on in his own epistle, he says, These things are for us as an example. He says, Jesus is our example. And so as we're looking at this, we're going to learn from him about how to face the evils in our own day. He looks to the scriptures and he looks to the sovereignty of God. Our failure is predicted. Now, secondly, our recovery is prearranged. This is amazing. He says, you know, that that God will strike the shepherd and then the sheep will be scattered. So Jesus is ready for them to flee. He knows they're going to flee. It's predicted they're going to flee. But Jesus has already made arrangements for it. He says, after I have risen, I will go to Galilee. Now, let's look at a couple of things about this. Number one, our recovery is prearranged because Jesus' recovery is prearranged. After I have risen, he's talking about his resurrection before he faces all of his sufferings. His head is already in the heavenlies. He's already through it in his mind. He knows how it's going to go. Does it mean that he doesn't suffer? No, of course not. This next picture in Gethsemane, he suffers gravely. So so do you. But you have your mind already past the moment of desolation. You've already got your mind on the resurrection. That's what Jesus does after I've risen. So when, when we wonder sometimes how in the world did Jesus go through this agony, not just the physical agony, but the spiritual agony of bearing all the sins and the shame and the humiliation, whatever sin and humiliation you've ever suffered, just think about it. Worst moment, got caught red-handed, did the worst thing in your life, and you got caught. Think of the humiliation of that. Multiply that by six billion and just pile it all on one person. I mean, who, can, who can even imagine the shame and humiliation of this experience that Jesus is going through in his passion? But when the writer of Hebrews talks about how Jesus did it, he said, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross and scorned its shame and sat down at the right hand of the Father. So he had the joy set before him and therefore he could scorn. He could hold the shame in contempt. He bears the shame, but he holds it in contempt because he knows ultimately the shame is going to be destroyed. That's the way you do it. That's the way I have to do it. When I've sinned and I have all the shame on me from sin, I don't have shame because I just, I just hold it in contempt because Christ has taken it away and there's going to be a day of resurrection when one day I'm going to look like Him. And so are you. After I've risen, He says. And so when you think about your death, you're on your deathbed. You've got your children around you and your grandchildren. Why don't you just say, 
After I arise, I'll see you in Galilee. After I arise, I'll see you. We'll get home. This is not fairy tales. This is not pie in the sky. This is exactly what sustained Jesus Christ. And gentlemen, this is exactly what happened in history. He wasn't just whistling in the dark, hoping against hope. He was hoping in hope, the sure and certain hope. And he lived for it. He died for it. That's the way you live a triumphant life, no matter what your circumstances are. So Jesus kept his eye on the Father and the Father's providence and the Father's gift to him of resurrection. And then look what he says. He says, not only after I've risen, but he says, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. I'll go ahead of you. That means you're going to come behind me. That means I'm going to see you in Galilee. And gentlemen, that's exactly what he did. And in one of the latter appearances that he made in Galilee, it's recorded in John 21. What happens in John 21? The guys are out fishing, as usual, especially Peter, James, John, and Andrew, the fishermen. They're out there fishing. Well, I don't know what to do. Let's just go fishing. Fine. It's great. So they're fishing. Jesus comes on the shore. They don't quite recognize him at first. It's, it's probably a little foggy and a little bit off of the distance. But they hear his voice. Peter makes a bold and very intellectual move. He puts on his robe and jumps in the water to swim. It makes no sense at all. That's typical Peter. And he doesn't wait for the boat to come along. You know, he could have stayed dry. No, no, no. We're going to jump in with your coat on and swim. to. The... So anyway, they get there. And then you remember what Jesus says to Peter. Peter, do you love me? That's a tough question. That's a painful question. Because Peter had denied him. Peter, I want to know something. Do you love me? Lord, I love you. You know that. Okay, Peter, feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Ask him a second time. This is getting more painful. It's like the Lord doesn't believe me. And I'm having to profess my love. I professed my love once, and it didn't work very well. I said, told him before I was going to die for him, and then I didn't. I was a chicken. Now he's asking me a second time, Peter, do you really love me? Lord, you know I, you know I love you. Feed my lambs, Peter. Hey, Peter, do you love me? You know all things. And you down in my heart, I love you. Peter, feed my sheep. And so three times, when he goes ahead of these people to Galilee, he searches out Peter, who he knows is going to deny him and who did deny him. And in his denial, fulfilled the Scripture. And Jesus' heart goes out to Peter to restore him. And gentlemen, that's what he's willing to do for every one of us this morning. Meet every one of us where we are. It may be painful to be restored. Because you can't be restored until it gets out and you're willing to deal with it. But you get it on the table and let the Lord challenge you. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Go right back to the scene of the accident where you denied him. And he will restore you right there and send you into ministry. Take care of my sheep. Take care of the people of this city. Take care of the people in your workplace. Take care of your family. Take care of your church, your Bible study, your small group. Amen, Bible study. Take care of people who are hurting. Take care of my sheep. He puts you into ministry. And then later on in chapter 21 in Galilee, he says, Peter, you're going to go where you don't want to go. And he foretells Peter's martyrdom. And Peter says, what about him? 
<laughs> Am I going to be here? I mean, <laughs> it's so typical Peter. Lord, okay, so it's going to be hard for me. It's going to be hard for everybody else too. What about him, Lord? What about John? And Peter said, uh, Jesus said, Peter, don't worry about John. Let's just focus on you. Peter, you're restored. You're back in service. And you're going to die a death of a martyr. Just be faithful to the end. And you know what, gentlemen? Peter was. And he was crucified, history tells us, just like the Savior, except Peter refused to be crucified right side up like Jesus. He said, you crucified me upside down. And in his last moment, he showed the courage that he so longed for, even in this text. Why? Because Jesus knew Peter would deny him. He knew his weakness. But he also knew how to restore Peter. He said, Peter, after I arise, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. And there will be a very important moment of healing. And it will be for us. Jesus rose from the grave so that we might rise from the grave too. Jesus showed his courage so that we might get his character as he deals with us. If you let him deal with you, he will impart progressively. He will impart his character to you. He will restore you. It's exactly what happened to Peter. So our recovery is prearranged as well as our failure predicted. And then notice uh, C, verses 29 through 31. Our self-perception is really laughable. Uh, We think we will stand alone for Jesus. We think we are willing to die for Jesus. (laughs) Peter, this language, look at this in verse 31. Peter insisted emphatically. (laughs) How do you say anything more strongly than that? I insist emphatically. I'm willing to die for you. Yeah, right. So we have a self-perception that is normally way beyond what reality is. And this leads to some very bad misbehavior. It leads to trusting in yourself instead of the Lord. It leads to trusting in your own self-made reputation instead of the imputed Righteousness of Jesus Christ as your reputation, ultimately. It leads to men taking things into their own hands. Like trying to carry out the kingdom with a sword. Which is what Peter, a little bit, a few moments later, tries to do. And we, as we mentioned last week, Peter is not a very good shot. He was not aiming for Malchus's ear, I assure you. He was aiming for his aorta or carotid, or whatever it is, going for his neck, and he missed. So not only did he use the wrong method, he wasn't very good at it. He was a very bad crusader. Uh, And so here was Peter on a crusade. He was going to kill people who were opposing the Christian religion. And, you know, you could just see Jesus going, Oh, golly, Lord, the sooner the better. Get me home out of here. Dealing with these people. And so where does that behavior come from? It comes from, I'll never deny you, Lord. I insist emphatically. It is overestimating yourself apart from the gracious work of God in your life. The better stance for Peter would have been, Lord, I cast myself upon your mercy. Please help me in this hour of trial. To be faithful to you. 
grabbing the feet of Jesus and begging for Jesus to give him Jesus' strength. That would have been a better stance. So the disciples of Jesus typically overestimate our own character and our own strength. This is not just for people who are new converts. This is for seasoned missionaries, seasoned Sunday school teachers and elders and deacons, seasoned Christians who often will overestimate ourselves and our self-perception ends up being quite laughable as it is with Peter in the scope of history. We laugh about Peter all the time. And I'm sure Peter's going, ha, 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 listening to us. I think I got the last laugh. Look at me. <laughs> Where are you? I'm up here. So, so he, he can laugh. He can, laugh, he can say, you all laugh all you want to. I came out like, you know, like a bandit, uh, which he did, of course. But it is laughable. Now, this is Jesus' disciples. Not only denying him, but denying that we will deny him. This is Jesus' disciples in our weakness. And it is Jesus in the glory of his own dignity and character. Now, let's look at verses 32 through 42. And what we're going to see here is that Jesus' disciples sleep when they should pray. I'm sure there's nobody in here that would fit that description. (laughs) But this is the description of Peter and James and John. First of all, we're going to see that even though Jesus commands us to watch, he told them, he commanded them, sit here while I pray. And he took Peter and James and John along with him. And he was deeply distressed and troubled. So it's even though, B, even though he is deeply troubled. He is deeply troubled. This word is only found in Mark's gospel, and it means deep emotional distress, deeply troubled. He was sorrowful. Look at this language. He says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. So he has commanded them to watch, to sit right there and watch, to be watchful. And and uh, and then he he's deeply sorrowful and he communicates that to him. Here's one of those rare moments when Jesus is asking his disciples to help him. You won't ever see this again. But here we had in our history the one moment when we could have said, Jesus, of course, can I go with you? Can I hold your hand? Can I kneel with you? Can I pray with you? Can I serve you? What can I do for you? You know, anything. This was the moment when we failed. It was really about our only moment. We lost it. And, you know, we could say, well, if I'd been there, that's what I would have done. I would have, I'd have helped it. <laughs> there you go. Your self-perception is laughable. Uh, these, these men represent us well. And we think about ourselves. We really don't think about the Lord very much in terms of what he needs. But here he is deeply troubled. He says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow. And then look at the prayer that he prays. And I want you to notice the, the first word in verse 36. Abba. Now, you're used to this word Abba because it appears in the Bible several times. But in, in the history of Jewish prayer, the word Abba is never recorded. In first century Palestinian writings, there's nothing that says anybody ever prayed Abba. They prayed the more formal word for Father. This means kind of like Papa. So Jesus is introducing us to something here. And Mark is, John Mark in his text, that Jesus taught us to pray not just our Father, but our Papa. 
he taught us to pray to God as one who tenderly loves us. It's like Abba is the kind of language you would use bouncing around in his lap. You know, just love being loved by the Father. Papa, Daddy, something like that. And uh, Jesus is introducing us into an intimate relationship with our Father. And let me just say, all of us here did not have an intimate relationship with our fathers. I'm quite aware of that. And believe me, the world is aware of it because a lot of the world's woes come because men did not have an intimate, affirming relationship with their father. A lot of this world's woes. I don't know about this young man who went crazy and shot these people at Virginia Tech, but I can only guess about what kind of relationship he must have had with his dad. A lot of this world's woes come from that. If you go to the prison and you interview the men in that prison, 90% of them had a father abandon them. This world's woes come largely from men who did not have intimate relationships with their fathers. When you struggle in your relationship with your wife and you yell at her, you say ugly things, you get mad irrationally, you don't even know where your anger comes from. A lot of it is because of a lack of an intimate, affirming relationship with your father. If you really want to know the truth. And if you get good counsel on that, you will begin to to connect the dots between your anger and misbehavior now and sometimes your performance-driven life now and the relationship that you had or didn't have with your father. It's amazing how often that happens when we get good counsel, try to figure ourselves out and try to get a solution so that we can get a grip on our lives. It has a lot to do with dealing with that huge gap in our lives. And men try to fill it in all kinds of ways. Drugs, sex, alcohol, success in business. Oftentimes, men who are most driven to be successful in business are men who are trying to make up for the lack of affirmation from their father to get affirmed from everybody else who's going to give them all kinds of prestige, all kinds of kudos, all kinds of deference, and that will replace what they were missing when they were kids. A lot of this world's woes have to do with men who did not have or do not have very affirming, intimate relationships with their father. Here is the biblical solution for men who didn't have an intimate relationship with their earthly fathers. That is to gain one with your heavenly father and then to give one to your kids and your grandchildren. You cannot do much about the lack of an intimate, affirming relationship with your father. But you can do a whole heck of a lot about an intimate, affirming relationship between you and your son and your daughter and your grandchildren. And it will all come because you are finding your affirmation and your intimacy and your satisfaction with a great relationship with your father in heaven. And you're going to have to relearn it because he is not like your daddy. He is holy and righteous and majestic and powerful, but he is also compassionate and gracious, and he builds intimate relationships. He makes himself known, and he wants you to let yourself be known to him. And he will listen to all your crap and love you still. And a lot of fathers don't do that. They get very impatient with your stuff. God doesn't. So we have to relearn fatherhood. And Jesus is teaching us here, in the moment of his deepest distress, he calls out to his daddy. And his daddy happens to be the father of the universe. 
That's how we get healed. Let's watch our Lord Jesus. Let's learn from him. Let's live the way he lived. He didn't have any help. Joseph, his earthly father, his adoptive father, was probably dead by now. His closest friends, anybody who could have been a mentor or rabbi to him, they were gone. He only had one, the Father in heaven. And every relationship derives from that relationship. And all of our ministry to others will derive from our confidence in an intimate, affirming relationship that we have with our Heavenly Father. And I'm here to tell you that through Jesus Christ, God is your Father. And this is the healing source of all healing in our lives. This is the way it happens with Jesus. He says, Abba. And then look at this prayer. It's a remarkable prayer. I don't know that you'll see anything quite like this in the life of Jesus anywhere else. He says to his father, everything is possible for you. So he knows his father's power. He knows his father's control of all history, his father's sovereignty. Everything is possible for you. So there's no doubt, Jesus says, that this is possible for you in your sovereign. No doubt. You're the sovereign king. Everything is possible for you. And then look at this request. Take this cup from me. Wow. He has just said that Scripture was being fulfilled. Jesus intimately knows Scripture. Obviously. Isaiah 53. And now he's asking for his Father, for whom all things are possible, take this cup from me. This blows my categories, I have to tell you, about Jesus and sovereignty. and all. I don't understand this. It's blowing my mind. All I know is that he is in such deep distress and that he is not only fully God, but he is fully human. And as a human being, he does not seek out pain for its own sake. And he is asking to be delivered from the pain of it. Brothers, do we understand this? Jesus, when he went to the cross, he did not want to go there in his human flesh. It was extraordinarily painful for him. So much so that every fiber in his material being was crying out for relief. He said, Father, I know all things are possible for you. Take this cup from me. What is this cup? Well, we don't have time, but we can look in the Old Testament. You'll find in Jeremiah chapter 25 and Ezekiel chapter 23 and many other places in the Scriptures where the cup is shown as the cup of God's wrath. When he speaks to the Israelites and the Babylonians, you can hear their, the drumbeat of their coming on over the horizon. They're right on the horizon of, of judging Israel. He says to Israel, you drink the cup of God's wrath. You're going to drink it. If you say you're not going to drink it, you are going to drink it, he says. And so it's a, it's a cup of judgment upon his own people. And here is Jesus knowing that he's at the moment of facing the judgment of God on behalf of Israel. And rather than they're drinking the cup, he's going to drink the cup of the wrath. And he says, Lord, everything's possible with you. Take this cup from me. But then look at the next words, the words of submission. Where he says, yet not what I will, but what you will. So here, Jesus is in the midst of this incredible distress. And his only comfort is, first of all, God is his Abba. He trusts him. He, he knows of God's power. And he submits himself into God's will, knowing that God is a gracious father. And sometimes, gentlemen, you get to that point, you don't understand. Jesus understood. Sometimes we don't understand. We ask for relief, and it's perfectly all right to say, after you've prayed for relief, 
Lord, I am not the sovereign of history. You are. I'm telling you what my body and my spirit are crying out for. The bottom line, I trust you. Even if it means suffering for me, your will be done, not mine. And that's exactly what Jesus taught us to pray for. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Do you know what that can mean when you pray for God's will to be done? It means you take up your cross. It means you could die. You're praying for His will to glorify Himself in this earth. So yes, you pray. Look, Jesus prayed for relief. Pray for relief. But the grand summary of your prayers, Lord, in all things, exercise your sovereign will in a way that will glorify you. And I submit my body and my soul to your service, whatever it will be. That's the safest place to end your prayer. That's the way Jesus does it. But in the midst of this, disciples are sleeping. That was not clearing my nose, although that didn't hurt. Uh, I was illustrating sleeping. Then in verses 37 through 38, we see that we're even clearly warned. He says to the disciples, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. He's saying to his brothers, look, I need you to pray because I'm in my hour of sorrow. Obviously, I'd love to have my brothers praying for me, but there's a problem that goes even beyond my distress. It's your distress. Because if I'm distressed, you're going to be faced with the same distress. And if you're not praying, you're going to find yourselves in trouble. And gentlemen, it's the same way with you. If you're not really asking the Lord, you're going to get yourselves in trouble. If you've got a big financial problem this week to deal with and you haven't stopped and asked the Lord to help you, you're going to be in trouble. And not just that the finances may go badly, but your moral performance may go badly. If you've got a problem with one of your kids and you're trying everything in your mind to figure it out and manipulate this and manipulate that and position yourself for this and give them this advice and all around, and you haven't taken it to the Lord and pled for His help, you're just ready to fall into temptation. If you've got a problem with your wife and you haven't taken it to the Lord in prayer and asked Him to help you be a husband to her, you're going to be in trouble. You're going to fall into temptation. So Jesus comes back, not only asking for them to watch and pray for himself, which, of course, he did, and they failed. Now he says, pray for yourself. Because if I'm in woe in this world, this world is going to bring you woe. And your greatest source of strength and encouragement and your greatest hope of being able to face these things with character and victory is through prayer. And then, so they were clearly warned. And then, and then he says, this is the hour. If you look in verses 39 through 42, he's basically saying, um, uh, enough, the hour has come. This will be the hour of his being glorified by being lifted up on the cross. So here they were in the most crucial moment in world history, asleep. <laughs> this is so typical. <laughs> look, the message for us is clear. You know, you have some defining moments in your life. And we should be praying at all times. But there are those defining moments when we should be at prayer. You know, it's interesting, uh, on 9-11, I was actually playing tennis that morning. And I, uh, I walked through and saw on the TV one of the trade towers come down. I said, oh, my stars. <laughs> ah! So immediately, you know, leave the tennis court, come back, we call for a prayer meeting. And this room was full to the gills with people who came from work Tuesday afternoon. I remember it was Tuesday because that was my tennis day. Uh, Tuesday afternoon, we prayed. This room was full of people who prayed because we were in an hour of need. What sometimes we don't realize is you have these little defining moments in your life all the time. And Jesus is saying, pray through those. Take those as an opportunity to get you to prayer 
Because probably one reason you're in the hour of need is you didn't pray enough before that. Now's your chance. Come on, let's pray. So they are sleeping even with all of these incentives to pray. Now, lastly, let's look at verses 43 through 52. And here is a profound teaching for us. Jesus' disciples flee when they should stand. Whoops. This is going to get embarrassing. Sounds a lot like me. Jesus' disciples flee when they should stand. First of all, verses 43 through 45, Jesus' foes betray him to our face. This is happening right in front of us. We're watching betrayals all the time. It's very interesting in this betrayal. The Sanhedrin is going to arrest Jesus. So how are you going to do that? Get all these soldiers armed to the teeth. I mean, the Sanhedrin is absolutely terrified. You know what? People are still terrified of Jesus Christ. They are. They arm themselves to the teeth. And you've got this little prophet there who by now is hungry and worn and skinny and impoverished and tired. <laughs> They're going to have to arrest him with an army. Uh, it's kind of like when they went to arrest Elijah. You remember? I, I, uh, Elisha, I mean. Uh, this was the story. I quoted this uh, on a Sunday morning not too long ago. But when Elisha was in Dothan and the whole Assyrian army uh, comes to arrest him or Syrian army, not Assyrian. And they sent a whole army there. And Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, gets up in the morning, stretches and looks out and goes, oh, my stars. Sees all these forces, these Syrians, these Aramans surrounding their camp. And uh, old Elisha comes out and says, oh, don't worry, Gehazi. Uh, there are more of us than there are, more than there are of them. Gehazi says, the man's getting old. Can't see anymore, can't hear, can't chew, can't think now. He's lost his mind. And Elisha prays, Lord, open Gehazi's, Gehazi's uh, eyes. And his eyes open, and he sees the hills filled with chariots and horses of fire. <laughs> and uh, sometimes we just can't see. But here we have people who think they've got to arrest the prophet with an army. The fact of the matter is, of course, they do need an army. The fact of the matter is that army is not nearly big enough because Jesus has a thousand angels. He could call down any moment and fight those guys. But they come armed to the teeth, and this betrayal happens right in front of us. The betrayal, betrayal, of course, is someone on the inside. It's a fifth column. It's someone on the inside that turns on Jesus. That's what betrayal is. We expect the Sanhedrin, don't we? We expect the Roman armies to be opposed to Jesus Christ because his teachings are undermining their authority. That's no surprise. We don't expect a disciple to turn on him and become an instrument of either the Jew, Jewish Sanhedrin or the Roman army. But that's exactly what happens. It happens right in front of our face. We're watching the whole thing happen. Look at what the betrayal is. He betrays Jesus with a sign of devotion. Often a, a rabbi's disciples would greet him with a kiss and call him rabbi. This is typical discipleship behavior in the first century with Jewish rabbis. So exactly what Judas says. It's dark. You won't be able to make out which one is Jesus out of those 12 men over there. So I'm going to go up and just greet him and let you know which one it is. So, so Judas comes with an expression of devotion and submission. That's what betrayal is. You use the very instruments of worship and service to undermine the kingdom of God. And gentlemen, it happens every century, every decade, every year. It's always happened in the church. 
So we see that one out of 12, that's a pretty small percentage. Sometimes the percentage gets greater than that. At least one out of 12 is using the very instruments of the church. They'll use the prayer book. They'll use the Baptist Creed. They'll use the Westminster Confession of Faith. They'll use the 39 Articles. They'll use all kinds of historical references. They'll use the same robes and vestments. And they absolutely slap Jesus in the face by what they say and teach. And they'll pray sometimes even in His name. And they will undermine His kingdom. It was happening right in front of their face. What did they do? Well, let's look. Our reactions are sometimes not very helpful at all. We react in the flesh. And that's our first bad reaction. Well, let's just take their heads off. That's not a good reaction. (laughs) That's not what Jesus wants. That's not the way to handle it. And Jesus says to the soldiers, uh, was I leading a rebellion? Let me remember. Uh, no, I think I was just out there all by myself teaching the courts every day. You could have arrested me. You come with this army? And then he looks at his disciples and goes, oh, Peter. Uh. And we know from the other gospel accounts, Jesus heals the servant's ear. And he rebukes his disciples. He says, Put those swords back in your sheath. <laughs> That's not the way we do it. And isn't it interesting, we look at Christian history, one of the most embarrassing moments would be the Crusades. A bad theology, getting the means of the world mixed up with the means of the church. Or the Inquisitions, bad theology, getting the threats and manipulations of the world mixed up with the ministry of the church. Jesus said to those before him, my kingdom is not of this world. And he gave us mighty weapons, the weapons of Christian character and the weapon primarily of prayer and the weapon of faith. And the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Those are our weapons. You say, well, I'm not quite sure those will hold up. Oh, really? Check the last 2,000 years of history and see if those weapons worked. You say, well, a lot of people died. Right. Jesus died too. So we die, but our weapons work to change the world. So the first reaction to the betrayal right in front of their face and to the arrest that was happening was to react in a carnal manner that left a mark, certainly with Malchus, the servant, saying, boy, these Christians, they can get really angry, can't they? I just lost an ear. And it was a bad testimony. And Jesus healed it. Look at the, uh, the other reaction. We flee. We flee from Jesus and his methods. We take the methods of the world, and if those don't work, I'm getting the heck out of here. Now, why did they flee? It goes back to their prayerlessness. He says, pray, or you will fall prey to temptation. And brothers, if you, whatever your problem is today, uh, if it's a problem with your health, you're really concerned about your body wearing down, or you got cancer, you're not sure how many more days you're going to have, just be in prayer. You know, when David Williams in our, our Amen uh, group here some years ago came and told me about his pancreatic cancer, I said, Pastor, I don't think I have it about three or four more months. He said, now, amen's been really great for me. He said, I've really learned how to live the Christian life here in amen. He said, now I want you to teach me how to die. I was speechless with a man who was so clear-headed. And so we just talked about how do you die. And certainly you can imagine in David's life, a lot of it had to do with prayer. Just learning to pray. Be watchful. And these, these disciples fled because they didn't know how to pray. And then it continues with our willfulness. 
When we're not praying, then we use the methods of the world. We pull out the sword, lop somebody's head off. Let's take it into our own hands. That comes from prayerlessness. We're not prepared to die ourselves. We're not prepared to lay down our own wills. We're very willful. So the first thing is prayerlessness and then willfulness. And then it ends in faithlessness. Heck with it. You know, God gave me gifts. He gave me this sword. And if this sword doesn't work, well, I guess I'll just go on and do some other mission. Now, why don't you lay down your sword, take up prayer, and lay down your life? Maybe that's the method God wants to use. Maybe that is it. It is it. And here we have displayed before us uh, the effects of prayerlessness. And then in verse 52, we're told, uh, or verse 51 and 52, there's a young man there. And all he had on was a linen garment. Now, a linen garment was an expensive suit of clothes. Okay? So he got this one at one of the expensive stores. And he was following Jesus. So he was a, he was a, he was a cool dude. <laughs> he was well-dressed and everything, following Jesus. And when they seized Jesus, he fled naked. <laughs> That's a great picture. Let me tell you who most scholars think this is. Most scholars think this is John Mark, who came from a prominent home in Jerusalem. He was a cousin of Barnabas. He came from a prominent home. And most, most scholars say that's the reason you don't have a name here is because Mark was being either modest or embarrassed <laughs> and didn't put his own name in. But this guy was so afraid. He just left his good suit of clothes they ripped off of him. And he just got out of there in nakedness and shame. He'd rather flee naked than stand clothed. And that's such a clear picture of what happens to most of us. Well, in the two minutes we have left, let's ask ourselves a few questions. One big question, so what? The first thing we see in these texts, is that, uh, texts are that we are worse than we thought. And, uh, you know, people from the Delta are really good at saying, you know, I'm just bad, you know, I'm terrible. I'm just I'm a terrible Christian. Da, da, da. Well, yeah, fine, that's good. That's good, good Delta humility. problem with some of that Delta humility is you have no intention of getting any better either. I'm bad. And then tomorrow, I'm bad. And tomorrow, I'm bad. Next year, I'm bad. You know? So we really don't know how bad we are, or we wouldn't stay there. We're really bad. Uh, And, you know, people will say, they were saying, uh, you know, in some of the services at Virginia Tech this this week, we need to restore our faith in the basic, uh, basic goodness of humanity. Restore our faith in the basic goodness of humanity after humanity killed 32 of humanity? Now you're going to restore? That is not where you want to go with that lesson. We can restore our faith in the goodness of God, but let's restore our reality in the face of human wickedness. And let's restore our faith in the grace of God to take wicked humans like ourselves and enable us to do anything good. We need to humble ourselves before the Lord. Secondly, Jesus is more gracious than we can imagine. You know the, the song, Jesus Loves Me, This I Know, for the Bible tells me so. Our, our hymnal has four stanzas, but there, there's one that's not in there that's actually my favorite. Jesus loves me when I'm good, when I do the things that I should. Jesus loves me when I'm bad, even though it makes him sad. Jesus loves you when you're bad. And you are bad, and I am bad most of the time. And he loves us. 
When I arise, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. He loves you when you're really bad. And lastly, we are called to follow him, to be faithful, to be prayerful, to be courageous. Yes, we're bad. Yes, we're weak. But you know what? He not only forgives us, but then he calls us out of it. So, yes, we're bad, but we're not as bad as we were yesterday. So you can say, I'm bad, but I'm better than I was yesterday. So, yeah, we're forgiven, but we're also being restored and renewed. Peter got better because he put his trust not in himself and his sword. He put his trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, in Christ's forgiveness and in Christ's ability to make us men of God. God help us all. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word to us. Thank you for the confidence that we have not in ourselves, but in you, which you have proven to us over and over again. Please help us in the midst of our own distress to learn from our Lord about how to deal with the chaos and the depression and the distress that is all around us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you all.